Tina and I are both from the state of Kansas, not a shock to those of you that have worshipped with us for a long time. We are both from farming families. That's deep within our background. My grandfather farmed for years and years and years until he couldn't farm anymore. And then he left the farm in Diamond Springs, Kansas, moved to Wichita, moved to the big city where he became a welder. But he couldn't leave his farming ways behind him. So he planted a huge garden in his backyard, huge garden. We lived on the other side of town, but we visited my grandparents a lot. I can remember every summer as we would drive over there multiple times, grandpa would do the same thing with my dad and my brother and I. He'd take us into the backyard and we'd go and look at his garden. He wanted to show us everything that was growing there, show us the green beans. He'd show us his lettuce. He grew corn, wanted to see his corn and of course, his tomato plants. My grandpa's favorite thing was radishes. So he'd show us the radishes he was growing. He'd pick those things right off the vine, rub them on his pants, and pop them in his mouth. Nasty thing. Grandpa would do that every summer when we were there with him. Tina's grandfather, kind of the same way. He was a farmer, but he didn't start until he was in his 70s. He owned a gas company. When he retired from that, he had too much time on his hands, and so he wanted to do something to fill that time. So he bought 1,200 acres of farm ground in his 70s and started farming. Before that, he had a garden beside his house, huge garden, made my grandfather's garden look like nothing. When I first met Tina, for some reason, we had gone over to her granddad's house, Les McClinic's house, and she was showing me around and showed me something that I had never seen before. He was such a gardener that he grew his own popcorn that strange? Grew his own popcorn. That's how much he loved farming and loved gardening. He was really good at it. Now my dad, growing up with my grandfather on the farm, he'd rather take a beating than have to grow his own food out of the dirt. So he hates gardening. Tina's dad, growing up in a garden family, or gardening family, loves to garden, and he's extremely good at it. Now, he doesn't grow radishes, he grows green onions and a number of other things. But his favorite thing to do is pick his green onions, take them into the house, wash them off, and then just eat onions. I don't understand it. But one of his specialties, tomatoes. Love his tomatoes. He is really good at it. How many of you are from the Midwest? How many of you know the difference between a Midwest vine-ripened tomato and one grown anywhere else in the world? They're the best. They are the best. And he is so good at it that in August of every year, he picks his tomatoes just a little bit green, puts them in a box, and mails them to us. We look forward to getting his tomatoes every year. For about six weeks, we get a a delivery of tomatoes about every week. They're wonderful. The thing that, that makes a tomato the best is when you fry up a whole bunch of bacon, slice that tomato, and put the bacon with a little bit of lettuce on top of it between two pieces of bread. You know what I'm talking about? Some quality stuff. Corn on the cob sitting on the plate next to it makes a fine, fine meal. I'm getting hungry just thinking about this. Interesting the differences. My dad grows up in a farming family. He couldn't care less about it. Tina's dad grows up in gardening families, and he loves it, and he's very good about it. For some reason, the gardening gene skipped right over the top of my wife and I both. Here we should have deep roots in this. We don't. We are terrible gardeners, terrible farmers. And I'm not exaggerating that when I tell you we're terrible. We're not just bad. We're horrible. So we never really thought about gardening, not much at all, until four years ago. Four years ago, we decided we needed to start eating a little more healthy, and maybe we ought to plant a garden. A lot of people around here have gardens. We thought we ought to plant a garden. Now, we'd never done this before, and like I said, never really thought much about it. But now, we're going to make some lifestyle changes, start growing our own food. And for Mother's Day that year, 
I went out and bought my wife all the gardening tools. Fellas, not a good idea. I went out, I I bought her all these tools. I said, hey, this is going to be wonderful. We're going to start gardening. We looked at the tools, thought to ourselves, we're ready, we're equipped, and then this realization hit us. We have no idea whatsoever about how to start this process. So we called Greg and Kathy here out. Kathy is a master gardener. We asked them to come over for dinner. They did. We had ulterior motives. We had a, a great meal with them. We played cards with them, and then we said, Kathy, master gardener, we're wanting to get into gardening. Maybe you could help us out. She said, I'd love to. We went outside, walked around the property. She found the exact perfect spot for us to build our garden, told us exactly what we needed to do, made sure the water would get there, perfect sunlight, everything was perfect. She said, oh, you guys are going to have a great gardening season. They left, went home that evening, and from that point forward, Tina and I proceeded to ignore everything she said. Everything she told us to do, we did exactly the opposite. We looked at having to put the fence in and turn the dirt over and haul some other dirt in and so on, and we said, that's just going to be a lot of work. Let's become container gardeners. We have a deck that catches a lot of sunlight, so container gardening ought to be the way for us to go. So we went out and bought the containers. Master gardener told us where to put the garden. We said, nope, we know better. Went and bought the containers. We put them on the deck. We bought some soil. How stupid is that? We bought soil. Master gardener told us that we were blessed with having horses, and we could use certain products that the horse produces to make our soil richer. But we needed to mix it just right, so we went over and and got five-gallon buckets of horse product, brought it back over to the house. We mixed it all together, had a wonderful smell on our deck. And then we said, we want to raise zucchini squash, we want to raise cucumbers, we want to raise bell peppers, and we want to raise tomatoes. So we went and bought those plants, planted every one of them. Our goal was to have fried zucchini and fresh tomatoes. That's a good meal in and of itself. Problem is... When harvest time came, we went out to pick our zucchini, and we'd done everything right. We'd watered several times a day. We'd kept the weeds out of it, but our zucchini was exactly that long. (laughs) It's the biggest zucchini we raised. People were bringing zucchinis into the church. I think they were trying to brag at the time. Huge zucchinis. This was ours. Made you feel really good. We had this great goal that we were going to go out and pick our bell peppers off the vine and go in and make fajitas. We'd just slice them up after washing them. Problem was, our, our zucchini dwarfed the peppers we grew. They were about this long. You couldn't have got one fajita out of our entire crop. It was terrible. We wanted to pick our cucumbers, slice them up, put them on a salad. The peppers dwarfed the cucumbers. It was nothing more than a bud on the vine. The cucumbers were terrible. So we hung our hat on the hopes of our tomatoes. Not one of them grew. The only thing we could grow were cherry tomatoes, and they were flavorless, absolutely flavorless. Thankfully, Tina's father was mailing us tomatoes, saved the whole tomato summer for us. Everything else was terrible. We even decided when we got into this that we wanted to put out just kind of a fun little plant in our garden. My dad had, for whatever reason, even though he wasn't a gardener, not a farmer, he had raised hens and chicks. Tina's parents raised hens and chicks. We always thought they were kind of cool. They spread everywhere. Hens and chicks can live on the surface of the sun or on the bottom of the ocean, either one. You don't have to do anything for them. So we planted some hens and chicks in the midst of our container gardening. Everything shriveled. They died. They didn't just die. They were cremated on our deck. We had a service for our hens and chicks. It was that bad. We looked back at this and we thought, how did this go so wrong? 
How were we unable to grow anything and even keep the hens and chicks alive? And the answer was pretty simple to figure out. We ignored everything the master said. She told us everything we were supposed to do. She told us how we were supposed to go about it. She told us where to plant, how to plant, and so on. And we ignored every word she said. And we've never tried again. Totally defeated. We've never tried again. You realize that people do the exact same thing with Christ. We ignore what the master says all the time. He even uses gardening and farming illustrations to prove this point. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 13. I'll show it to you. If you're a gardener, you ought to love this passage in the Bible. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Skip over to verse 16 with me. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell in the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Like I said, if you're a gardener, you ought to love that passage. If you have farming roots, you ought to love that passage. It's not hard to understand, even though the disciples would say to Jesus, why do you teach them in parables? Jesus' response would be so that people can understand. I'll just make it as simple as I possibly can. I'm going to share stories. That's what Jesus did. He shared stories with people so that they could understand everything that he was trying to teach, so that they'd be able to pick up what he was putting down. That's why Jesus talked the way he did. That's why he shared in parables the way he did, so that we, simple-minded people, could figure out what he was trying to get across. In this particular case, he wants us to understand four different types of hearts, and he uses soil to illustrate it. There's the hard heart that is symbolized by the rocky path. Seed of the gospel is thrown on that hard heart, and either it it sinks in, and oftentimes it doesn't because it's rocky on that path. Otherwise, it just bounces off. That's what happens all the time with the hard heart that doesn't want to receive the seeds of the gospel. 
Then you end up finding the shallow heart. The shallow heart's the one that you heard Jesus describe this way. People receive the seed of the gospel and it starts to grow a little bit because there's no soil underneath it. The roots don't go very deep and those people end up just falling away. Then there's the crowded heart, the one that is full of worry and and anxiety, the one that's full of sin and there seems to be no room for Christ in that heart. And then there's the, the good heart, the fruitful soil. Jesus really wants us to hear about that one. This is one that is the right type of dirt that receives the seed the right way, that gets watered and can grow and produce fruit. That's what Jesus wants us to understand because that's what he's after. Now, if you think about it, if you've been in Christ very long at all or been coming to church long at all, you can put a face and a name with every one of those types of hearts or the soil that Jesus used to illustrate it. You know what the hard heart looks like. You've seen people that refuse the gospel. You know what the shallow heart looks like. You've seen people that have heard the gospel and then have just drifted away because the roots could never grab hold of anything. You know what the crowded heart looks like. That's the person that says, I'm just too busy or I have too much going on in my life to accept the things of God. And you know what the good soil, the good heart looks like. That's the one that Jesus wants for every one of us. He wants us to have a good heart made up of good soil that receives the gospel and produces a crop. But in order for us to do that, we have to listen to the master. We have to pay attention. If we ignore the master, same thing will happen in our spiritual life as happened in our gardening life. It will wither up and die. And we will see things die that should have been able to exist but couldn't because we would not listen to the Master. Now, we're in a study of the book of James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He seemed to have heard this parable in some way because in the first chapter of James, he will allude to it in a very subtle yet pointed way. The interesting thing about that is the New Testament teaches us that during the time that Jesus was on this earth, prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, his brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters, didn't believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Christ. They didn't believe until after the resurrection. And then they became believers. But somehow, James, the half-brother of Jesus, heard this message, and he gives us great insight into it. He expounds on what Jesus was saying. And ultimately, that's what you find. Outside of the four Gospels, you find the writers expounding on what Jesus taught in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anything that is other than expounding on what Jesus taught is pointless. That's man's thoughts. They're expounding on God thoughts. That's what the Apostle Paul does. That's what John does. That's what James does. That's what Jude does. That's what Peter does. They are expounding on what Jesus taught. And James uses this parable and stretches it for us. Go to James chapter 1 with me. We're going to start in verse 19. My dear brothers, take notice of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Now listen, listen real close right here. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. See how he grabbed the illustration of Matthew 13? All of a sudden, he's in a gardening illustration. He's in a farming illustration. The word was planted in you. What type of soil are you? Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. A religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See how he he made the connection? If you're a gardener, maybe you want to write in the margin of your Bible right here next to James chapter 1, verse 21, Matthew chapter 13. And in the margin of your Bible next to Matthew 13, write James 1, 21. Those two things are highly connected. Those two passages are brothers and sisters in the Word of God. And we have to learn from them as James expounds on the teaching of Jesus. This is really good stuff that he has to say here. Listen again, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. The whole point being this. If the word is planted in good soil, fertile soil, if your heart is full of fertile soil, it's going to produce the right crop. The right crop is one that glorifies God. And the Bible would actually tell us what that crop looks like. This is the the garden of Jesus right here. Galatians chapter 5. Turn there with me, would you? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Now again, if you are a person that is given to writing in the margin of your Bible, make all these connections solely so you can put the whole teaching together. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. That's the garden of God. That's the garden of Jesus. That's the crop that is produced in good soil. Listen to it again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If your heart is the good soil, you should be able to look at your life and say, am I producing that fruit? Because the right seeds were planted for it. And if the soil was right, this is the byproduct. This is the crop. Now, just so you see the contrast of it, the Apostle Paul will show us exactly what the other type of crop looks like. Still in Galatians 5, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a fair question to wonder how it is that that type of fruit gets produced in somebody who has heard the gospel. Well, Kathy, you're out. Master Gardener maybe has the right answer for us. Remember, she told us we were blessed by having horses. And if we were to mix the right amount of horse manure with the soil that we were wanting to plant in, it would yield a great crop, but we had to make sure that we didn't put too much in because that could run the crop. That's exactly what the master gardener taught us. I think that probably happened in some regards in our gardening effort. The same thing happens in a spiritual garden. If you mix too much manure with good soil, you will squelch the good crop. If you put too much horse manure in there, sorry for the crassness of the illustration, it will destroy the righteous crop. 
That's the way it works. But if the soil is good and it's pure and it receives the seed planted by the gospel and it is watered the right way, then it takes off and becomes exactly what it is supposed to be. Jesus in John 17 has an interesting teaching. It's called, not in but of. That teaching says that we are not of this world, but we are in this world. And what he means by that is that we are not full of the manure of the world that's around us. We're full of pure dirt, and the crop should be different as a result of it. It doesn't mean that you have to be separated and isolated. It just means that the crop is supposed to be different because the good word of Jesus Christ, the good seed of Jesus Christ was planted within you. What type of soil did you give God? What type of soil comes out of your heart? What can he plant in? If we're going to produce this type of crop, according to James and other places in the Bible, we're going to have to go through a process called sanctification. That's a a big biblical word for you, sanctification. It simply means to be made holy. There's a process involved in that. We go through a process where we start where we're at, we look at what's going on in our life, we surrender that to Jesus, and then we progress on towards holiness or Christ-likeness. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen with the snap of a finger. It's not something that just instantly takes place in your life. Salvation does. Salvation is an instant thing in our life. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we're obedient to Him, instant salvation. We get declared perfect before God instantly. We become children of God instantly. But this process of sanctification takes a while. And it's something that we have to pour effort into or it is all wasted. Pour the right effort into it though and it changes our lives. James would actually help us understand how to go about that. And it's a little different than what most people would expect. Go back with me to James chapter 1. We're going to get into verse 19 again. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now, if we're not careful, when we read those two verses, we can become very guilty of a Bible study technique that has gotten a lot of people in trouble. That technique is called proof texting. You proof text when you read a passage of Scripture and you lift it out of context. You take it off of the page and try to assign to it whatever meaning you want it to have. With these two verses, here's the meaning that people give it in proof texting. They find somebody that has anger issues and they read these two verses for them. You need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If you want to overcome your anger problems, that's how you do it. Now, there's good teaching in that, and that really is good medicine for people with anger problems, which, by the way, is immense in the year 2015. It really is. 50, 60 years ago, it was predominantly men that were diagnosed with anger issues. Today, it's men, it's women, it's teenagers, it's children. Everybody is wrestling with anger issues because of society, because of makeup, for all kinds of different reasons. So it's not something that we can just hold off for men. There really is good teaching in this for all of those different dimensions, men, women, teenagers, children. If you're wrestling with anger issues, you really should be quick to listen. Pay attention to all the information before you react. Slow to speak. Measure your words. Figure out what's coming out of your mouth before you react. And be slow to to get angry. Make sure that you look through all of the other emotions before you go there. See what's appropriate before you just throw something out. However, 
That's not what James is teaching. You have to put it back in context. Starting at the beginning of of chapter 1, we know that James is talking about the role of trials in our life. We know that he is teaching us how to seek wisdom from God. We know that he is teaching us not to be double-minded. When God tells us to do something, we need to act upon that. We need to accept the wisdom of God. Those are all the things that we have studied leading up to this point. And now all of a sudden he throws this teaching in. It is not some random 90 degree turn. He is continuing on in the exact same line. What he is really teaching is that when we seek wisdom from God and direction from God, we need to be quick to listen. We need to be slow to speak back to God. And we need to be slow in becoming angry at who? If James is directing this at us, who is he telling us that we need to be slow to become angry with? God. Isn't that interesting teaching that takes on a whole different look than just pulling this off the page and looking at it in application of people's anger issues? This is us being slow to anger with God. You might think to yourself, well, nobody really becomes angry at God. Oh, yeah, they do. A whole lot of people get angry at God. You ask the Lord for wisdom and direction and God sends you down a certain path and you don't like it? Anger is the result. God tells you you're supposed to change something in your life and you don't like what he says. Anger is the result. You ask God to do something for you, but it doesn't happen on your time schedule. Anger is the result. Let me show you what this can look like because the Bible actually has a a record of somebody that wrestled with this. Let's go to the Old Testament, the book of Job. If you're familiar with that book at all, you know that Job has been going through some difficult things that God allowed. Satan wanted a shot at him. God granted him the shot. He moved the boundaries around Job's life so that Satan could touch him, and touch him he did. He lost his business. He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost his home. He lost everything except his life. Things got so bad for him that he was actually covered with boils. He had this horrible infection. Boils were the result. He was sitting on a pile of broken pottery, taking that pottery and scraping the boils with pottery, just trying to get the poison out of his body. That's how bad it was. His wife came and met him in chapter 2. Boy, she was not an encouraging lady. Not at all. I want you to listen to what she says. Job chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Fellas, wouldn't that be a great encouragement to you if your wife came to you and said something along those lines? Holy smokes, just give it up. Why don't you curse God and die? And that maybe will bring an end to my problems too. Let's get this whole thing over with. Curse God and die. That's what she's saying. He replied, and fellas, again, this is one of those times that maybe you don't have to take your cues from the Bible. You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Well, maybe you should take your cues from the Bible. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, let's just stay on the anger track for just a second. Contrary to popular belief, anger is not a sin. The Bible teaches that in our anger, we are not to sin. In his anger, he did not sin. In her anger, no sin happened. See how this works? You need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, after this account in chapter 2, Job's wife becomes pretty distant in the book. She's replaced with three friends that give mixed advice. Some of it's pretty decent. Some of it's pretty bad. Job continues to wrestle through this for 36 chapters. All that time, 
he's building through different range of emotions until finally he lashes out at God. He was quick to listen. He was slow to speak. And he was slow to become angry, but then he did become angry. And he lashed out at the Lord. Listen to what happens in chapter 38 then, starting in verse 1. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Those are the words of God. He's pretty upset now, too, at the things that Job has been saying. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? But verse 3 is so pointed. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Could you imagine hearing God say that to you? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. The end result of which is this. You have no answer. Neither did Job. And God, for the next few chapters, just lays out this question to him. Who in the world do you think you are? Where were you when all of these things happened? Now, you grab hold of your faith and you stand before me like a man. It's exactly what he was saying. And God still says the same thing to us. In those moments where we are not quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry and we lash out towards God, God looks back at us and says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Who do you think you are? James uses that as the starting point for us in this process of sanctification. He didn't say, go out and ask well-educated people to give you a list of do's and don'ts in Christianity and then start getting those things taken care of in your life. He started right here at a base level. When you ask God for something and God responds, it is not your place to question the response. It is your place to act upon it. Don't become angry at God because the answer wasn't what you wanted to hear. Don't get upset with God because God's telling you to do something that you don't want to do. Don't get angry with God because God's not on your time schedule. You act upon what God has placed in front of you. That's how sanctification works. God says do it, we do it. I like the way James says this. Let's go back to his book. Do not merely listen to the word, verse 22, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Boil all that down. This is what James is teaching. When you have something revealed to you from God's word, do it. When you have something revealed to you out of the spirit of the living God through his word, act upon it. There's a whole lot of deception that flows around that says, oh, we don't have to do that. That's for somebody else or that was a cultural thing. We don't need to do that. James would say, once it's revealed to you, do it. Just act upon it. And what a beautiful illustration he uses. He says, if you don't, It's like the man who goes and looks in the mirror, wanting to take care of whatever problem needs to be taken care of, wanting to fix himself, but then he turns around, walks away from the mirror, and he forgets what he looks like. He forgets the sin that was there. He forgets what he's supposed to fix. We could illustrate it like this. If I were watching some mark or mole on my shoulder in the mirror in the mornings when I'm getting dressed and I I see it growing and changing and the edges are real ragged and it's getting real bumpy and I think to myself, gosh, I... I need to have that checked out. That may very well be skin cancer growing on my shoulder. I ought to go to the doctor and have it looked at. But as soon as I turn and walk away, I forget about that spot on my shoulder. 
There is no reason in the world that I should be surprised when the doctor tells me that I have cancer metastasized to other places in my body and it started right there because I ignored it. I chose to do nothing with it. The same thing is true spiritually. When we look into the mirror, the perfect law, into the Word of God, and we see things revealed in our life that we need to deal with and we do nothing with them, it's exactly the same way. And we shouldn't be surprised when we get a diagnosis that says we are spiritually dying. We shouldn't be surprised when distance grows between us and God because we looked into the mirror and we didn't do anything with it. We just walked away. Now, as is often the case in the Bible, we can flip the nickel over, and James does. He teaches us that the person who looks into the mirror, the perfect word of God, and they have something revealed to them and they act upon it, they unleash the blessings of God. They get into a place where the Lord can really use them and do something with them. It's a beautiful picture. But first, we have to battle through the emotions of what God says to us that might upset us to understand where he's taking us. He's taking us into a deep walk with him. It's a beautiful place when that happens. Let me give you some practical ways that this works. If you're a person who has never really had a lot of friends in your life, and you want to change that, you recognize that you're alone and you're lonely and and you need some connections, and you start looking in the Bible trying to find some answers, you will discover them. Passages like this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now to look into the mirror, into the perfect law that is the word of God and do something with it, in this particular application means this. You have to ask yourself, am I carrying other people's burdens or am I only expecting them to carry mine? Am I the type of friend that is always using other people or am I the type of friend that is faithfully available If somebody needs something, they can call me and I will carry their burdens. A lot of isolated people, a lot of alone people, lonely people, are people that have never figured out how to carry someone else's burdens. They've only asked others to carry theirs. So to look into the perfect law, into this mirror, says that maybe I have to quit being so focused on myself that I focus on some other people. And as a result of that, I start having deep relationships. People get connected to me. That's how it works. Or maybe you're a parent with young children in your home and and you're asking yourself, how can we make sure that the teenage years are as smooth as possible? Now, there's always challenges in those teenage years, but how can we make it as smooth as possible? Well, when we look into the perfect law, when we look into the mirror, we find some answers, real simple answers. There are a lot of young parents with us right now that have babies living in their home or have toddlers living in their home. Listen real close to this. Just pay real close attention. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Do the work when your kids are young, and when they get older, the work's going to be a whole lot less. Oh, you're still parenting. Don't ever quit parenting. Don't ever stop parenting. Until you die, you are a parent. You stay at that job. You stay at that position. But when they're young and they are formidable and they are impressionable, do the work. A couple weeks ago, a friend of mine named Sterling Highland posted this on Facebook. Just random thoughts. Sterling does this all the time. He puts random thoughts that just come out of his mind, and many of them are good, on Facebook. I want you to see what he wrote. If you are a Christian, have kids of a formative age, 
and are not making it a top priority to have them in church on Sundays, their likely resulting marginal interest in God will certainly increase their risks, spiritual and otherwise, later in life. I really believe that. Sterling Highland's words. That's really good. Do the work when they're young. The Bible says when they're old, they will not depart from it. Sometimes that's overwhelming to the parent of infants that just wants some sleep. Sometimes that's overwhelming to the parents of toddlers that just want a break. Sometimes it's overwhelming to the stay-at-home mom who deals with everything day in and day out, and she's just overburdened by it. So we stop fighting the battles that we need to fight. The Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. That's good wisdom. It really is. Maybe you have some financial issues in your life that you're trying to figure out and you're not sure exactly how to pull it off. Well, take a look into the mirror, into the perfect law. The Bible is going to give you a couple of different things that lead to financial peace. We could boil them down this way. Avoid bad debt and become very generous. Now, the world says those two things don't make sense. The avoiding bad debt, well, that that makes perfect sense. But this idea of becoming generous, that doesn't make much sense. I want you to see it right in the Bible so you see it for yourself. You can't go back and say, well, that's just Phil saying that. No, this is the Bible. Psalm chapter 37, verse 21. The wicked borrow and do not repay. That's bad debt. But the righteous give generously. There's the two sides of it. Avoid bad debt and become very generous. That's great teaching. By the way, there's a dessert auction going on right now to help send kids to camp. I'm just saying. I'm trying to be very generous, but Chrissy Lord, where is she at? Chrissy is sitting in the back. She is challenging my generosity on some lemon bars right now. and I'm afraid I'm about to reach a limit. Here's, here's the way this works. I was just talking to a business owner this past week. He was telling me about a generous moment that he had gotten involved in, and, and it was really cool. The whole story is really cool. And then he said right after that, he had two big jobs that came his way, and he's absolutely convinced that they are tied to this moment of generosity. So if you want financial peace in your life, avoid bad debt and get very generous. It works. It works. Or how about this one? Maybe you want your life to matter for a bigger purpose than you have ever thought before. Maybe you're reaching a point in life where you're retiring and you're going to have a lot of time on your hands and and you want to do something now that can impact the kingdom in ways that you've never been able to do before and you need to know how to pull that off. Well, pay attention to this from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's a teaching of the Bible. God left us this wonderful vehicle, His church, as an expression of our God-given spiritual giftedness. That's one of the beautiful aspects of the church. It's our opportunity to use what God has given us for the kingdom, and every one of us has gifts. I have gifts, you have gifts, the person sitting next to you has gifts. If you are in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. In retirement, you also have time and oftentimes resources to bring all that together. So don't isolate yourself as so many retired people do. They have this mentality that I've done the work, I'm done now. 
Somebody else can do it. You know, the Bible never once, not one time, does the Bible speak of retirement, and especially spiritual retirement. That never comes up. In fact, what we find is this. You're supposed to stay at it until the Lord comes back for you. Use your gifts. Don't isolate and pull back. Use your gifts and do what God has called you to do and enabled you to do. See how it works when we look into the mirror, the perfect law? We can choose to turn and walk the other way and say that applies to somebody else. Or we can do what James says. We can have it revealed to us and do it. And if we do it, great things happen. It leads us to a beautiful place, just like he would detail, into pure ministry where we're taking care of orphans and widows. We're just doing what the Bible says. We're doing it. But a lot of people don't want to. I want to show you in just about three or four minutes here as we wrap this up. I know I've gone long. Hang with me another three, four minutes. Some really deep teaching from the book of Hebrews. You're in Hebrews chapter 10. Go over to chapter 9 with me, starting in verse 16. Listen to what the writer says. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now let me show you the really deep part of this. We're going to go back to verse 16. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. The last will and testament of God, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ is right here. This is it. It's the Bible. When we open it up, we find all the things that he wants for us. We discover our inheritance and we discover his teaching for us. It is his last will and testament. According to the book of James, when we read it, you remember this from James chapter 1, verse 22, we are to do it. It's just that simple. But as is the case with a lot of wills, when they are read, if you are one of the people that is to inherit something, oftentimes we think we can contest the will and we can get what we want. And people do that with Jesus all the time. They try to contest the will rather than doing what is written in it. Let me show you just a, a real simple illustration of this. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter preached at Pentecost, people said, what must we do to be saved? His response, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, 
Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was his response. So the issue of baptism pops up there. Now, it was also in the Great Commission. It also showed up in the gospel when Jesus was baptized. All through the book of Acts, we see this idea of baptism over and over and over again, which, by the way, in the Greek, the word baptism comes from the word baptizo, which means to dip, plunge, or immerse. In the book of Romans, it is an identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why a person is dipped or plunged or immersed in baptism. So, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how he responded to it. But people want to contest that part of the will all the time. And they want to say things like this, it is necessary for you to repent and then repeat this prayer after me and you will be saved. Did you know that the sinner's prayer is nowhere in the Bible? You hear people say that all the time, just repeat this prayer. The sinner's prayer is nowhere in the New Testament, doesn't exist. If somebody could show that to me, I would sign on in a heartbeat. But nobody has ever been able to show me the sinner's prayer. Or they'll say things like this, repent of your sin and fill out a card and you shall be saved, every one of you. Or it'll take on this twist as people contest the will. Repent and raise your hand and you will be saved. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. What the Bible teaches is repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times, people will use this argument to try to get that point across. They'll say, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. And this is always my response. I love this argument. Because of Hebrews chapter 9, I love this argument. I always smile when people say that to me because of Hebrews chapter 9. They'll say, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, so therefore baptism is not necessary. It's not essential, and this is my response. So if you're ever going to make this argument with me, you already know what my response is. Here it is. Jesus wasn't dead. When he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise, he was still alive. And whatever Jesus wanted to do prior to his death, it was up to him to do. If Bob Lewis wanted to give me all of his guns before he died, he can do it. No matter what the will says, if he packed them over to my house and said, here you go, Phil, I want you to have all of these. I'm going to say, thank you so much, Bob. That's really cool. And his will may say that he's giving them to somebody else, but he already gave them to me. So it's different. He negated the will while he was alive. Jesus was able to do whatever he wanted from the cross, but at the moment that he died, baptism became one of those acts that we must be obedient in. According to James, just do it. Just do it. And then we can easily look at that and say, if we're not willing to be faithful with this simple little thing, and there's reasons that people aren't. There's reasons that people don't want to be baptized. Things like this, they'll, they'll say, gosh, it's kind of embarrassing. If I was to go forward and be baptized, that, that's just kind of embarrassing. This is my standard response for that, too. So was the cross. Yeah, it really was. So was the cross. Other people say, I don't want to be baptized because it'll mess up my hair. I don't really understand that. <clears throat> but that's what they'll say. Others will say, I have family issues in my life that make it hard for me to want to be baptized. I have a heritage that keeps me from wanting to be immersed. Well, Jesus changed a lot of heritages. Think of all the Jews that became Christians. He changed every one of their heritages. He came up against that with every Jew that ever became a believer. There are no excuses. 
And the same thing is true with every other act of obedience that we need to follow through with. When the Bible, the mirror, the perfect law shows it to us, according to James, we're only to do one thing. Do it. Just do it. Otherwise, you're the person that's looked in the mirror, turned around and forgotten what you look like. If you want to experience pure ministry, holy sanctification, and do the things that God wants you to do, then look in the mirror, and when God reveals it to you, do it. It's just that simple. Deanie and I were teaching our What We Believe class last Monday night. We'll teach again tomorrow night. If you want to join us, it's not too late. Come join us. The first week that we do that, every time we always talk about how the church presents salvation. It's fun. So we, we stand in front of everybody, and we do that, and baptism is a part of it. And this last week, coolest thing happened. We don't know. We were talking about this last Monday night. We don't know how many times we've taught this class together, but we both really love it. And there were 21 of us. 21, 22, whatever it was. 21, 22 of us in the class, we presented salvation. We came right up to baptism. Lady sitting just one row in front of me said, when's your next baptismal service? I said, well, next Monday night, we'll have the baptistry on. Or Sunday, it's always on and ready to go. You can be baptized next Sunday. You can be baptized Monday night. She said, how about tonight? And I said, well, you know, it's awful cold in there. And she said, doesn't matter to me. I said, well, doesn't matter to me either. I'm putting on waders. Let's go. So we headed to the baptistry, and we stood in the water there with with the rest of the class around us as we prayed together. Folks, that's what it means to look into the mirror and say, that's what I'm supposed to do. And according to the book of James, it carries on from baptism to everything else. That's what I'm supposed to do? I'll do it. All right. Good enough. If the Bible teaches it, I'll do it. It's just that simple. And it unlocks the blessings of God. How exciting is that? Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for this simple teaching from your brother. I know he picked it up from you. Lord, help us pick it up from him. We want to be able to do that. Now, Father, I know that I've gone long today, and I hope that hasn't gotten in anybody's way. I pray that it's not a stumbling block for anybody. Rather, Father, I pray that every one of us, myself included, will understand the value and the power of looking into your perfect word and doing what we're taught. I pray, Lord, that we'll all take a hard look at the soil that is in our heart and we'll act upon it. Help us do that. Father, right now I'm praying for people that know what they're supposed to do and just haven't. Lord, would you let that change today? In Jesus' name. Amen.